Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land right now. This land has been in the hands of uh, generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long, long after us. It is a meeting place for sharing knowledge, for sharing stories, and for sharing song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling here today. And every day here at FBI Radio, I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. Uh, We're broadcasting from Redfern now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and Redfern is a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. Uh, This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas and this week we're bringing you a conversation with creative powerhouse Zinzia Kenyo. She's an acclaimed actor on screen and on stage She's a play school presenter and uh, a musician based here on Gadigal land. And we've wanted to have her on Race Matters basically since the show's inception. We are huge fans uh, of Akenyo here at Race Matters, but more on that in a bit. But first, uh, we are joined by Sarah Khan over the phone. Sarah, how are you going? I'm good. I'm coming to you right now from... um Darig and Gringai country here behind Galston. So I'd just like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. It's, um, yeah, been a nice break for me. I like to come up here and visit another sister girl of mine, Celeste, and um, have a nice kind of like recharge of my batteries over the weekend before we kick into the week, especially after the week that we've just had as well. Yeah, it has been uh, an intense week. Uh, you, this week it was revealed that no criminal charges uh, will be laid against the police officers involved in the case of Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day's death. Uh, she was arrested in December 2017 for falling asleep on uh, a V-line train to Melbourne, uh, fell and hit her head in a Castlemaine cell and was left lying on the floor for three hours. Uh, Victoria coroner at the time uh, found that an indictable offence may have been committed by the police officers who she said had failed to adequately check on her safety security, health and welfare so yeah it's come as a real shock to find that no criminal charges will be laid down in the case Uh, you'd think that given the current state of thinking of highlighting indigenous deaths in custody, hundreds of deaths in the past what 30 years, zero convictions uh, that there would be some sense of accountability here but yeah our thoughts are with the day family who are who are really hurting right now yeah and just for people that are listening in and wanting to kind of find out more information about this case as well this has been an ongoing trauma like many other families that have lost a member of theirs to a death in custody they've been going through this inquest for the last two years and it's been the same with tiny chatfield's family this week um the findings were presented to his family that his death was self-inflicted and no charges will be laid there as well. And it's an ongoing um, cycle of no justice being served, no acknowledgement being served, and um, speaks directly to the lack of care that's given towards First Nations people and the lives of First Nations people. It really speaks directly as well to how little this country wants to... Um, take responsibility for its actions and its oppressive um, actions, actually, against our First Nations people. And it's something that we're constantly talking about on this show in terms of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and people utilising this movement to kind of tick the box and move on with life. But this isn't, this isn't a um, social media <laughs> trend to jump on board with. This is everyday lives and lived experiences of people that are still not receiving that justice and are still living with the pain of losing a family member but not having um, any type of closure or any type of recognition of the pain and that loss and how it speaks directly to systemic racism as well. Even when that systemic racism is acknowledged within the system itself, like with Ani Tanya Day, 
still charges won't be laid. Still, there will be no repercussions and it means that that trauma is going to be ongoing. And so if, if you're someone that is trying to, um, not trying to, but if you're someone that is feeling like you've, you know, learnt a lot or you're trying, you're doing the most in this moment, it's it's not ever going to be the most because these are lived experiences that are, that are never being acknowledged and are never being seen and the plight is ongoing. And so um, I really, really, really implore people to... Um, just relentlessly share the information of these these cases because it's not getting any type of mainstream traction. It's not getting um, any type of acknowledgement that we see for um, people who are not of colour. And if these cases were happening against them, it would be a lot louder as well. And so everyone's role in this right now is to just keep these stories alive and don't let them just be pushed under the rug and become more numbers in the system. So really keep humanising these stories and keep them loud and keep them ongoing because justice has not been served. Absolutely. Sarah, what are you, how, how are you taking care of yourself and taking care of your people right now? Um, I'm just really staying um, in close contact with my people offline, actually. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of strong solidarity between a lot of um, black women online in most recent weeks and it's been um, really comforting and really, really uplifting. But... Um, same way with social media it can become very overwhelming so that's why like i'm trying to really take it because we can it can become you know a bit of a um like when you consume too much information oh yeah online you, and you're you looking burn at out yeah. All time. yeah 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 so i'm just really trying to take it upon myself right now to switch offline and just see those people face to face in my life so that's what i'm kind of really trying to do for myself at the moment is just switch that phone off and go and go and see my people absolutely you are listening to race matters right now uh, up next you're going to hear from zinzia kenya uh, about the whiteness of australian theater uh, being a role model for kids uh via her gig as a play school presenter and self-care as well uh sarah thank you so much for joining us we'll catch you very soon thanks darren have a good show You are listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas, and I've got our EP, Tanya Ali, here with me. Hey, Tanya. Hello. How's it going, Darren? I'm good. Uh, you caught up with Zinzia Kenyo for today's show, right? Yes. Yes, I did. And as you mentioned before, this conversation has been oh, a long time I feel like time she's just been like a subject of our conversations for over two years or something. Oh, 100%. I don't know how it's taken us this long. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think she's been like number one on my Dream Race Matters guest list since the show started in 2018. And actually, it's funny, the email chain on which we organized this <laughs> chat with Okenio uh, got started in March 2019, oh so God. over a year ago. Um, but anyway, if you're not familiar with Zinzia Kenyo, uh, I feel like it's your loss, <laughs> uh, but you're welcome. Uh, she is a local triple threat. She's an actor, a musician, a play school presenter. She absolutely does it all. And you may have heard her track Anthropology on Race Matters last week. Take your hands off my biology. Anthropology. 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 You sleeping but trying to take all of me. Anthropology. 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 You sleeping but trying to take all of me. It came out earlier in August. Uh, and it deals very deeply with white supremacy in the art world. That's where we started this chat. I asked her what inspired the track. Um, well, I actually wrote the track about two years ago. And uh, when I wrote it, which is often the case, it's kind of like a stream of consciousness. Um, and then it's not till afterwards I realise actually what a song might be about. So this one was very much like kind of blurting out and um and I wrote it kind of pretty much all in one go um and then worked with the producer later later to finish it off but um yeah so for me it was like personally I think definitely at the time really struggling with my own personal identity and I think just initially this idea of 
people seeing me in a different way to how I see myself and kind of having to prove myself, especially like within the industry, but also within personal relationships and my relationship with my own blackness as someone who's grown up in Australia without my father, who is the Kenyan side of me. So growing up actually quite um, Anglo and um, my process of being connected with my blackness has really come from my own work that I've done by myself, seeking that out. So feeling, I guess, pretty um, equal parts lonely, but also really frustrated and angry by and with what people were kind of taking from me from the the visuals. So that's where it started. And then um, ruminated over the years and then when I came to want to make the video – Um, And I spoke to Claudia, who's the director, when talking to her about the concept that I have, which was initially about a, um, uh, I knew that it wanted to be in a gallery and it was kind of this, um, (laughs) initially the idea was that I was going to be inside a painting and everything like shit was just kind of going to go like blow up and all of this stuff and whatever. And then we were like, okay, how can we kind of distill this? And I was reminded of a story that I have known for a long time, um, a woman named Sati Bartman, who's from a small tribe in South Africa, and she was pretty much taken from her tribe and brought to Britain to um, be put on display for basically like her body, her booty and her breasts and enlarged clitoris and all of these things that weren't, were particular to her tribe, but weren't in any way white or Western. And I'd read a play by Susan Laurie Parks um, that was about uh, it was about her, and I'd just been thinking about that for so so long, and so kind of coming together with how I felt personally about the song, and then um, where I wanted to take it visually, it felt like oh, this is the right time to kind of explore her story and my story. Well, and speaking of time, it has obviously come out in this very pivotal moment um, where we're talking more about Black Lives Matter than maybe ever before, Um, Mm. at least in the broader communities. Many of our communities have been talking about it for much longer. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) How have you found the reception to the track? It's very interesting to me because I'm 34 now and I, you know, started my career as an actor when I was pretty much like 22, 23, and I – was, you know, I've been very successful and I've worked in a lot of theatre and TV and um, often pretty much always been the only um, black person in the space. So these are the spaces that I've grown up in and felt very, I feel very comfortable in them just because that's been my experience. It's been my career so far. It's so interesting now, like I was on Instagram this morning and (laughs) I'm seeing in relation to what you're talking about, which is like, you know, Black Lives Matter is like happening now and everyone being conscious. You know, I'm seeing um, different kind of plays and shows and things come out and they're including more non-white faces and everyone's like, yes, doing the work, like everything's changing. And it's so, (laughs) all that stuff I find very funny, but like (laughs) uh, it's very like thinly veiled. Um, But for me it was like, Actually, I've been in, I've been doing that all the time and I've been on the posters and I've been in the shows and I've represented. And so, long story short, for me, it's a weird backwards experience because like nobody in the last, like my career has been going for like, what, 11 years or something and people haven't been talking about diversity, quote unquote, until like the last maybe five or so years. And so... I've had a bit of a reverse thing where now I was in those spaces and I um, kind of, well, nobody was talking about it and I kind of wasn't really noticing it until I was like made to notice it. Um, And now I'm questioning more than ever, like, like why I'm in these spaces. Whereas before it was kind of like, oh, but I deserve to be here, which part of course I deserve to be there but also there's obviously a really bad thing in the fact that nobody was talking about it and also I was the only black person in the room so it's amazing that all of this stuff is happening but it's also I guess kind of it's strange because obviously I've made a political work and I made it on purpose and then I wanted to bring it out just turned out to be really really good timing also 
slash meaning awful timing. But yeah, look, it's really, really complex. It's complex because also, you know, I've been reading a one, it's been validating to read a lot of posts, people having like the same experience as me. But also, again, it's like another form of kind of alienation because there's does feel like a pressure to when you like I've made this political work, it's doing quite well, it's garnered more attention and more opportunities. But then also I'm like, well, I always have to make political work. And maybe I want to write just like a frivolous song. <laughs> but then when it becomes part of your identity... And, you know, I feel really good in myself over the last kind of like four or so years. I've really been working on myself and giving myself a lot of power and like therapy and all of those things. And I feel really good like in myself and in my blackness. But it's quite a confronting thing to be so um, like making the video was really very vulnerable to make it and not easy and not necessarily even a great experience. And, you know, so whilst I'm personally working out who I am, you're still in these white spaces and still kind of putting yourself out there to people that putting yourself out there in a, in order to um, be heard and feel validated, but also to kind of um, empty ears a lot of the time. Yeah. It's super complex. Yeah. I guess you occupy so many different spheres in the arts um, and all of those spheres are notoriously white, at least here, Um, and we'll get to those in a bit, but I kind of wanted to go back to where it all began for you. Um, Were you a creative kid? Yeah, I think I, I was. I really kept to myself, which is still very similar to what I'm like now. Um, I think I'm good at um, making my own fun and I'm very um, self-sufficient and all of those things. And um, I think where it definitely imprinted itself was probably from about year 10, I was really, you know, I started doing plays at school and um, I'm also very driven and can be very single focused. So I think that in year 10, I just was like, I'm going to be an actor and pretty much like changed all of my I got rid of maths got rid of, <laughs> yeah. I was really backing myself you know like, <laughs> um, but I really went like hell for leather like really crystallized that vision and you know I when I got into NIDA to study acting I just felt like I really distinctly remember thinking like wow this is like such a I was 18 I just turned 18 moved to Sydney and thinking like one I have a supportive parent who has finances, like we've got government help, I have the talent and then the opportunity. Like it just is so many things to make something happen in order to move forward. And, um, yeah, so for me, like it's definitely been acting and and theatre that's been the real single focus. And and also, you know, I didn't come to being a musician or singing or anything like until, you know, what it's been like maybe seven years or something, but – as a kid, I just, I sang a lot and I, and I had a natural ear for it. And mostly I think it just made me, I was talking to my brother about it and he sings as well and he's a painter. And, um, we, we were just talking about how nice it feels in your body to let out sound. And I think that, you know, without knowing it, that's what was happening when I was younger is that it was just a very, very joyful thing that made me feel good. Um, so, yeah, and then I think when I got into music, I, I was definitely was definitely creative, creative um, output, but then like kind of most things, which is like a blessing and a curse, <laughs> um, it turned into a whole career. <laughs> so I was like, oh, damn, <laughs> you know, I have to, um, this is a thing now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you're now known as something of a triple threat, obviously, <laughs> with screen and stage um being a musician and also being a play school host which I really want to talk about uh, mm-hmm. a little bit later on how do you balance literally all of the things it was really really hard in the beginning and actually this lockdown time has been really um confronting and really really positive for me in the sense that I'm just seeing all the things that I 
don't want to continue on in terms of like just being busy all the time and it's so weird because now obviously we're not flying anywhere but I'm realizing like I was just at the airport all the time and you know I love that stuff but actually yeah it's quite hard to balance and um, practically it's fine you know that's just scheduling but actually what I'm realizing is that I actually don't have much time as myself and it goes a little further in the sense that, especially being an actor, but then it um, it does expand out into being in lots of different, like when I'm on play school, that's one thing. When I'm like Okenyo, that's one thing. <laughs> when I'm in a play, I'm playing a whole nother person. So I have become very good at being who I need to be in whatever space. Um, and yeah, if there's not that kind of like work-life balance, then it it's it's why you know a lot of the time in my personal life like that that is quite it can be quite confronting because I'm like oh, I haven't spent enough time really by myself you know so that has been really really good because I've had to look at myself and um and kind of sit with that and there's lots of things that I love there and that are very nurturing and there's lots of things like the kind of the hustle that moving forward I don't of course things will get busier but there's lots of things that I want to leave behind, like being anxious and the pressure that I put on myself. Um, and I, I, I really hope that moving forward, like that's a kind of general thing as we start to pick up pace that we'll kind of start to go, oh, yeah, that's right. Like connecting with people, like that's literally the most important thing. <laughs> totally. I feel like all of our priorities have or hopefully will shift in a positive way yeah um one of the few silver linings of this strange time (laughs) yeah (laughs) totally I guess the theater like much of the arts in this country is a really white space and you've performed in so many incredible productions all over the country from contemporary works about race and identity to you know Bell Shakespeare no Mm -hmm. big deal playing the lead in Much Ado About Nothing how have you found the process behind the scenes differs when you're working on productions that explicitly deal with race and identity? It's much better when the play is about that and I can um, extend that to, you know, I did a play once called Boys Will Be Boys, which was an all-female cast and I think the only man in the room was the um, stage manager, a beautiful guy, and um, but that was very explicitly about feminism. And so it works better when it's clear. Where it really goes awry is when people say they want to do one thing and there might be like the optics of it, which I have been um, a representation of the optics of what a company wants to do. Um, But then, and this is where, you know, the word diversity gets really tricky is that I really believe that there is no theatre company in this country right now that, and probably a lot of workspaces Um, purely for the fact that people are finally only just starting to understand what it means to actually have diversity and then be inclusive and create an inclusive and safe workplace. There is no theatre company in this country that actually has that structure. So that's where it becomes really dangerous for myself or a person of colour that... um, goes into this kind of murky landscape of like we're kind of doing this which happens a lot in casting which is like where it becomes kind of tick the box casting where you um uh, you know companies think that they it's very covert but actually when you're non-white you absolutely understand or you're constantly questioning am I ticking the box or am I here because you know I'm really right for it um, and so it, it does, it becomes very dangerous when I've just had a lot of, a lot of experiences where people say they want to do something, um, but then nobody's actually prepared to talk about it and sit with it, which takes time, which also, if you're working with non-white actors or, um, artists, um, it also means that you're probably, there's, there's, um, scope for creating work in a different way. 
especially in the theatre industry, everything is created at all the main stage companies. They are all created in exactly the same way with the same structure, like this amount of time for rehearsals, this amount of time to put it in the theatre, this amount of previews. Like it's so, so regimented, which means that you only create one kind of work down to the hours that you work and where you take breaks. So if you're going to be working with people from different backgrounds and then including like white people, of course, it's like, Everybody kind of, you need you need to be actually focusing in where I would like to get to is focusing in on who is in the room. It doesn't matter where you're from, your sexuality, your gender, your race, but who is in the room and how are we going to make this work? Um, and that just doesn't happen enough and it, it does. I, I will use the word dangerous because it becomes dangerous when you are the only black person in the room. In your eyes, who are the gatekeepers of theatre in this country? I think that the gatekeepers are often the people that are on the boards of whatever company, and they're often white, straight men, based on how history has placed us. And often those people... Um, you know, can be well-intentioned and really engaged. However, they are not really engaged with the arts because they're in the boards and they're not, like, right down speaking to the artists. Or when they do, you know, and I've been in many kind of rooms where it's, like, donors, philanthropists, da-da-da-da, actually there are incredible people in those rooms. But then there are also people that are just, not like, so not connected to actually why we make art and the value of art and the people that make it because without people there is no art. So that's where it gets really tricky because that's where we have to talk about systemic racism and a system and dismantling a system and also the patriarchy. Um, so it's really t- it's tough work and... I don't envy anybody that's doing it. I mean, I'm doing it. Everybody's trying to do it. But I was talking to a friend the other day. It's like it's like if you decide to go to therapy to be like, right, I'm going to talk about my relationship with my mother and like whatever. I'm going to go to these core issues. It's frightening and you have to address a huge aspect of who you are and a lot of people aren't prepared to do that. And, like, I understand why. Um but it's really, it's paramount to do that because, you know, even when I, you know, I see it say um, with casting directors within the, I've had examples with casting directors where like they'll be uh, in the like screen industry, they'll be well, well intentioned and they'll be gunning for, you know, not to make an all white show, but then they know who's above them. So they're trying to appeal to you personally, but then they also know that they're within a racist system, so they also might be like, don't wear your hair out. So that's why it's the people up the top and, and you know, those people are still alive and they'll be alive for a long time. We can't just, like, wait uh, <laughs> till mean, they die. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But also their successes are probably of the same identity as them, really, yep. unless something shifts, something major. No, absolutely. And then it's really tricky because it's like, you know, you need more non-white people in the workplace, but you also can't just be like, you need to understand, I think the core, yeah, the, the real issue is like you need to understand why you're doing it. You know, people can say this stuff, but then they don't actually, like there was that video going around where people, all the white celebrities were like, I stand with blah, blah, blah. Like I stand <laughs> against racism. And the reason why I just got so mocked was that they, no one knew why they were saying it. And interestingly, when you look into it, you might know this, but it was actually the campaign was created by a black company. And then they, you know, so it came from a really great place. But still, nobody on that video actually understood why they were saying what they were standing for. So that's why it was, like, completely torn apart on the internet because it's just like, stop it. Like, shut up until you actually know why and you're, and you're actually able to come through, you know. 
So yeah, you're right. It's it's those people that are up the top that they are. You know, there's many many great people in the industry, but they're all struggling, and they're often women. They're often um, yeah queers. They're often black people, and so we know how many doors aren't open to those kinds of people. How do you personally? balance or I guess navigate the responsibility that you might feel to yourself or to the industry and the people of color in the industry to invest energy into stories about race and identity? Um, yeah, it's again, lockdown has been really good for me because it's really, it's really, I think for the first time as someone who really thrives um, through um, having responsibility and, you know, making my family proud and making people around me proud and like contributing. And I take the responsibility, you know, even it comes from say play school is like getting messages from, um, parents, um, with, with children that look like me, like that's a, it's a big and beautiful responsibility, but this time has really allowed me to, um, recognize that I have to rest and that I have to, um, in order to be able to continue to do the work. Um, it's really me realising that I need to rest has been really important because there are aspects of it that are, that do feel like a burden, um, especially, say, making a work like anthropology and thinking it's going to be this empowering moment and then actually, you know, a very very vulnerable and and tricky piece of work to make and then to put myself and my body out there um I think I'm really recognizing that like not to take that lightly um it's hard because it feels like even more a burden because you also feel kind of alone in that um and knowing that the structures aren't really out there in order to um in order to support you that also part of that is like doing the work in order to create like a space. You have to do so much work in order to create those safe spaces. Um, but I think what has been a really positive thing for me at least is definitely connecting with other, other people in the community, in the black community, because this is also a really hard part of it is that we've been taught that we aren't allowed or shouldn't be all in the same room together. And so that definitely creates competition. It creates, like when I first came into the music industry, um, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely not blaming anybody because it's my own stuff as well, but it's like I, I didn't really feel where I felt I thought I would be um, – oh, now, you know, I'm in this kind of community. I, I didn't really feel, um, uh, what's the word? I, I didn't feel included. And that really hurt. And, you know, I've spoken with a lot of people within the industry now and, like, a lot of people feel have felt that way. And it's because of the structure that has been placed upon us. Like, we're not supposed to be together because that's dangerous, you know, to have a collective voice. So I think that that's what we're all trying to do now is, like, get past the trauma that we've had or at least examine that trauma and realise that it's not, it's not necessarily to – we might have all unintentionally hurt each other, but – actually we never wanted to do that and um it's really important to band together um that that's how you relieve the burden that when one person wants to rest there's other people out there and then you can kind of when you're strong again you can let that other person rest it's like the power in that community yeah community is so so important i want to talk a little bit about audiences mm. um Obviously, you know, we're talking a bit about theatre right now. Theatre audiences traditionally overwhelmingly white, older, often straight. And you've also performed music in front of some strange, fairly white crowds too. I remember um, seeing you play in an art gallery uh, where <laughs> the audience was pretty much entirely old 
white and they were also seated, which was really strange. It was weird. <laughs> then I found out that the sound was just so bad. It, it was, yeah, a bit of a, yeah. a bit of a mess that you had absolutely no control over. Yep. <laughs> How do the demographics of an audience affect your performance? Well, you know, I'm so used to, because of my theatre background, like so used to performing to people that really have nothing to do with me. Like my grandma is a beautiful old white woman and, you know, so I'm connected to her, so I recognise, but like that's literally the only person in my life. And so it's like, yeah, it's it's strange because, say, with that one at the gallery, um, you know, I think my acting experience comes in, t- in handy because I'm like, right, here we go. Put on a show and just bring it because there is no vibe here um, and you can't ever, I really believe, like you can't let your, just because of your mood, like don't place it on the audience, you know. Um, so I'm used to being able to like still turn it on um, but, yeah it really sucks like you know a lot of the time that you're you're you know the artists that I admire or like friends just can't afford to come and like see my work um but I guess with music yeah it's different but still I've never had this experience which I played in Australia I played um a show in New York many many years ago and I distinctly was like very much at the start of my music career and you know the like majority of the audience was African-American and black and for the first time I was like oh my gosh they're not in any way looking at me like I'm other and that I could be you know like a strong like kind of in and definitely in my performance back then it was way more like I was much more of a persona so it was like a more extroverted version of myself and so I could be kind of like forceful and 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 um take up a lot of space and it was just like totally recognized um and and applauded um and people kind of wanted that and I still don't like haven't thought about that time until now but I still don't think I've ever had that in a even though, you know, I do perform to more kind of, um, uh, yeah, not so many like just white audiences within the music industry, um, I guess I still feel other. And I don't think I've had that experience before where I don't feel like I'm kind of like a different kind of entity. And I think that that's also, again, because of the way that the system is run and also, you know, how festivals are run. Again, it's not like you're going to be put on a bill with heaps of other black people. So you don't even have like your sisters and brothers there like cheering you on. Um, so, yeah, it's still it's still very alienating. Mm. Jumping off kind of demographics of an audience let's go back to play school Mm -hmm. um how long have you been a presenter first of all eight years oh love that (laughs) um well you mentioned kind of getting messages from you know parents of of kids and I I honestly can't imagine how important it is for you know young black and brown kids seeing someone who looks like them on screen at such an early age, like it, it feels kind of unheard of. Like thinking back to when I was a kid watching children's TV, it was just, it was incredibly white. Mm. Um, and sometimes there was representation of color, but it was always dudes of color. Um, mm. yeah. Could you tell us about some of those stories that you have heard from parents? Yeah, I mean, a real distinctive one is that I was going through a really low time in my life and my confidence around music fluctuates a lot just because it's kind of more my newer endeavour and um, and it's very personal, so I, I constantly find it, like, quite revealing and confronting. Um, but I was really like, I don't know if I can do music, like, what's the point, blah, 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 blah. And I got a message that was from... Yeah, it was one of my kind of like first pivotal messages like this um, from a parent that said that her little girl um, was said that I was her favorite because we have the same hair and the same smile. 
(laughs) And it was just, I just was like, oh my gosh, you have to keep going. You have to keep going because I didn't have that. Like you're talking about, there wasn't the representation. I was used to switch over to Sesame Street because (laughs) even better. (laughs) And, um, and yeah, but now, you know, being on the show for so long, there are so many messages like that. And then I meet kids and so you when you meet them, you see that it is so immediate, the recognition. Um and and even, you know, like I'll be on set with um with say Luke Carroll or Nick Brown and you know, in those kind of early years I'd be on set with Luke Carroll, um and we'd just be like, Oh yes, like the cast is fully black, you know? <laughs> and but Again, I just, you know, I've never, I don't, we don't see it on our TV. We don't see it. And so I try to do that within my, um, within my music videos. Like that was really important for me, say, making Woman's World to have, you know, there's never been a show where it's been like all women um, ranging from ages nine to 40 (laughs) from all like completely diverse in its true sense for the right reasons, you know? So like, that's where I have power because I'm so powerless in those other ways. But play school, I think has always been, you know, they are, they really do have the right idea behind it. And I think that actually, um, because, because with play school and at the ABC, there's like such a, um, there's such a real, uh, core of education for preschoolers that it comes from that real place in a very serious place um, you know to teach a child rhythm and repetition and all of and, and imagination is a, a real part of a child's ed- education so um, because I think it comes from a very um, a strong core then it's and with children that are so porous and um, it's I think it's kind of it's easier to do it. It's, I don't know. I was going to say it's easier to do it there. Um, but I think that's maybe a cop out. I think there's just like a really good team because they can't, yeah, they, they really, really care and they really respond, you know, they're first to kind of like have the same sex parents in the window segment and they always get backlash and letters, of course. Um, but, you know, they responded by doing a piece on racism, like as soon as like the Black Lives Matters became very like globally aware, um, they really respond. And to me, it's a great example of what basically everybody should be doing. And also that I, it's like that great scene in, um, in, um, oh, I've forgotten. It's the film, oh, Hidden, Hidden Figures. Yes. Where Janelle Monet's character, she's trying to get into college and she can't because it's um, they don't allow uh, black people there. And she appeals to the judge by saying, don't you want to be the one that changes everything? Imagine, he, she appeals to his ego, which is like such a great move. <laughs> but I always think about everybody that's just like afraid of risk. I'm like, don't you want to be the one? Imagine like Channel 10, Channel 7, all of those commercials. Don't you want to be the one that just is like, fuck it, we are going to change the whole landscape. But people are so um, driven by fear. They are. But it doesn't even seem like that much of a risk anymore, you know? like, know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they think of money and mm. figures and all of that stuff, which like it's very real. Like I don't run, I'm not a CEO of a company, but like, I know that that you know it's not easy. So you have to um, you have to actually consider all of those things. You can't actually be rogue and. Um, but I don't. But you're. I totally agree with you. It's like none of that is risk taking. Like P.S. Everybody's just off. Like engaging in all of these amazing shows from you know like from all over the world, and like everyone's still alive. Like everyone's not like, oh my gosh, like black people. <laughs> Yeah. Who were some of the kind of role models across music um, and theatre that you looked to earliest or kind of saw yourself in? Oh, <laughs> do you know what? I don't even really know. Yeah. I think I, I think I was my own role model, to be honest. And um, yeah, which is actually like really sad yeah. <laughs> when I think about it. Um. Yeah. 
I think, you know, I looked towards women that were um, successful and I guess, you know, I was brought up in a way where I, um, like my mother brought us all up in a way that was um, making sure that we knew that we were, regardless of anything, that we were able to, like doors were open to us and we could achieve what we wanted to if we put our mind to it and worked hard and, you know, um, but... I think that's definitely, it's a, it's a, yeah, I don't think, I think I just looked to myself in order to, um, and, and I guess lucky that I, I've always had a good sense of self and believed in myself. Like even when I was at drama school, you know, they didn't really know where to place me or anything. And I think that again, it's like, it's not great, but you don't take it back. But the basically when doors are, for me, it's like when doors are closed um, and, you know, they said at drama school, you know, that basically, like, you're not going to make it. And in a sense, you just go, oh, you know, actually, I am going to make it. <laughs> and your, your expectation, I mean, part of the weird positive of that is like when people let you down, um, that you, you do have an opportunity to go like, no, I'm going to prove, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And I think this is kind of like a new thing for me is realizing actually how much I've endured and in order to get my career going and happening. And like, I'm really proud of myself. Um, but also just recognizing that, yeah, it's been really, really lonely and the, positive amazing affirming thing about finally I'm not really talking about like oh finally white people are starting to understand I just feel like it's a really um it's a really enlivening thing to know that actually the world is changing right now and um and that of course it's going to be slow and you still have to be really patient but it's so affirming for me because it makes me feel like I'm not as alone anymore and that there will start to be role models. Yeah, I mean, you are not only a role model for yourself, but a role model for so many kids. And also like, I don't know, I just last night uh, when preparing for this interview, I went for a walk and I was listening to The Wave um, uh. <laughs> and it, like took me back so strongly to listening to it for the first time in 2018 and like what a massive impact it made on me because it just spoke so directly to my experience as a queer woman of colour and I've never ever like heard myself represented in music like that before and like yeah I feel like yeah you are incredible and yeah the power that you have is just yeah I don't know it's yeah I really appreciate that thank <laughs> you I really very much appreciate it I think that's you know that is why I kind of I've always thought especially about music because I, I that it is the thing that I have like a lot of control over and I always think um you know to kind of get to the core of who I am and then express that and then the best part of making music is handing it over because it is really so um, thank you for saying that because it, it does mean a lot because I feel like then I've done my job, you know, to just hand that over and you can have your experience of it. So thank you. How do you practice self-care? I feel like this is a, a, <laughs> the question du jour, um, but a really important one all the same. Soup du jour. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. I've actually been really focusing on it a lot um, because I've been confronted by the fact actually that I would say that I am someone that really like practices a lot of self-care. But then recently I've been trying to go deeper on that and kind of where it goes just that deeper level. And it's everything that I've been kind of been talking about today. It's like that deeper level of like, um, allowing myself to rest, not having to answer to people um, if I don't feel like it. I think it's this thing of like, if I don't feel like it, it's okay. 
you know, I'm very good at saying no, no to this job or like no to that fee or blah, 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 blah. But like, I think when you get to the deeper aspect of it, it's actually going like, what are my values? And, and how do I actually, you know, self-care buzzword, great buzzword, but actually like the core of it is like, how do I respect myself? And that is, you know, that's how you how you behave and how you respond in your daily interactions with people. And I think, yeah, I've just been doing like a lot of work around that because it's been really beautiful this time to even say with my sisters who I'm already really close with, but like the more I'm opening up to them, we're having long kind of conversations. It's like it's deepening. I'm deepening a lot of friendships with um, family members and, and friends because um, we have the time to now. And I think, yeah, self-care for me is like connecting genuinely with people and and being quiet actually as well. Yep. And and being really kind to myself when because I'm such a um <laughs> overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's important to know oneself. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. At least yeah, I always think at least I know. <laughs> That's something, right? <laughs> um, we were talking when you first got here about what you're reading at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what what have you been consuming during this period where we have had that extra time to listen and read and watch? Yeah, so good. I've just been actually getting back into reading, which has been so nice because usually I just don't have like the headspace for it um, and attention span and stuff. And so um, I read a book, a really interesting book. Oh, I've forgotten the... Um, I think her name's Mako Nakazawa and her the book is called Breasts and Eggs and um, it's really interesting. I didn't end up loving the book as a whole, but the, the core of it is basically it's um, set in Japan and it's a lot about how um, what it is actually to be a Japanese woman in Japan and the social pressures. So that's a very like specific lens, but um, what it really, the core of it that I was really fascinated by was that it just had very, very frank conversations from all different aspects about, um, because the, the protagonist is thinking about having a child, um, uh, through IVF, like, or donor without, and it's apparently very taboo in, in um, Japan. And so it really opens up this discussion about like, why you, we like, whether to have children or not, but for real, like, is it your ego? Is it cause you're lonely? Like, why would you bring a child? And it's so interesting. Cause I, I really want to have children and I've always wanted to, but it just like fully shock shook me in terms of like, Oh, like why, you know, why? So that was very, it was great. Cause it really taught me a lot. The other one I just finished was, um, Lovecraft country, which by Matt Ruff, who uh, it's just been turned into an HBO show. Um, which is pretty amazing, um, set in 1950s America and like white supremacist country. Um, and it's, it's great because it deals with race issues, but it also is essentially like a horror sci-fi, which I absolutely love. And I think it's so interesting. It's also kind of like making anthropology was, you know, I love horror films. So there's that element, but you know, like all the stuff that Jordan Peele is making, Get Out and everything. It's really like so interesting to me that there's this now, this wave of like, the black experience through the lens of horror. <laughs> like, are you safe? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we literally, we did an entire episode about horror and, you know, how it's being used to tell mm-hmm. these stories last week. And uh, when I was programming the music for it, I was like, oh, I feel like anthropology will be really good. And when we played it in the middle of the episode, I was just like, whoa, as if there was not like get as get out has to be some sort of inspiration for this song because <laughs> it just speaks to it so clearly. Oh yeah, I mean that film Get Out. Oh man, I could talk about it forever. It's just so incredible to take that very domestic thing that like every you know if you've been in um, an interracial couple, it's like that just that one question. You know, do they know or how are they gonna? And to turn it into a fully fledged, you know, horror film. Yeah. So clever. He's just brilliant. So yeah, Lovecraft Country is just started. And the book was the book was pretty cool, actually. It was it was really good. 
Um, and I'm reading something else at the moment. Oh yeah, and then I just picked up. Um, I just went out of the, the out of the city to the Blue Mountains to have just like a few days out of the out of the mess. And um, and I I'm reading a book by Bell Hooks, which is called All About Love, and it's actually yeah getting to the core of like what love is actually, um, and how it goes beyond you know um, care and attention, but really like love for yourself or for another person how it really goes deeper into that love actually in its genuine nature um really encapsulates trust and respect and acknowledgement and care and attention but all of those things and so um yeah deepening that understanding of that stuff we've come to the final question of today's chat Mm -hmm. um this is a question we ask every guest who comes through on race matters Zinzio Kenyo when did you realize there was power in your race Mm. I think when I was about 24 and it came from at first a negative standpoint but it was actually the beginning of understanding my own power um I've been I had been doing plays at Sydney Theatre Company for many years and um and I think it just must have been a comment that somebody somebody said but because I hadn't necessarily been brought up black because of my white mother um obviously knew I was brown and and looked different to the rest of the cast but I really had an epiphany that how I look um really in terms of in theater the visuals of telling a story um and i had the privilege of playing like you know the fortunate opportunity it's not you know shouldn't be a fortunate opportunity but the fortunate opportunity of like i just played like white roles whatever and i realized that people were viewing me as not necessarily like oh so like that white couple have like a black daughter and it started to dawn on me, oh, my gosh, people see me completely different to how I see myself. So it was awful. But actually then what it made me do, and I started a long journey, um, now that was like 10 years ago, I realized that in order to feel powerful was that I had to get that knowledge. And so that's where, you know, I I started to basically like keep myself safe and make myself powerful and uh, gaining knowledge and um and seeking out other um seeking out other people and seeking out literature and all of that stuff to get to the point where now I do feel I do feel powerful in myself um not really even from like a race point of view I just feel powerful in being me and all that that offers and all that that can also protect me. You are listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. I am Tanya Ali, and we are kind of listening to a chat that I had with Akenyo a little bit earlier on this week. That last bit honestly brought me to tears. Yeah. Um, I could hear the emotion in Akenyo's voice uh, and you silently in the background too. But this idea that she grew up with no role models is something I can relate to in a way... in in the sense that growing up, I cannot pinpoint one person who looked like me, um, was a brown boy, a brown gay boy, who were was, you know, scoring goals in ways that people would be doing today. You know, that's just, is it a generational thing? I don't know. But the idea that she had to look inward and had to look immediately to her mother uh, is simultaneously tragic and triumphant. It is. It is. That part of the conversation um, was so, it was really moving. And for me, I think, you know, it's no secret that I'm a massive fan of Ikenyo, um and she has meant so much to me as a brown queer girl. And like, I so vividly remember 
coming across her, you know, three or four years ago and feeling so represented. And obviously I wasn't a kid then. Um, I was well into my like late teens, early twenties, but you're right that we, we didn't grow up with this kind of representation. And it's strange because I feel like sometimes we almost regress to our adolescence when we're seeing that representation now. Mm. Yeah, and it's a uh, you know it's an idea that gets thrown around with a lot of queer kids because for the most part of their teen years, while their other straight counterparts are experiencing puberty in a way that is open and expressive, uh, most queer kids are stunted. You know, they are in the closet or they're um, doing things in private or secretly or having to guard themselves or protect themselves or hide parts of themselves from either their family or friends or wider community for safety and protection. And it's not until generally that, you know, they're late teens, mid twenties, sometimes later that late twenties and thirties where they're finally feeling comfortable to be their open selves, um, especially for queer people of color, that they finally get to... Um, uh, experience a life that is more authentic to themselves. And that's a part of their lives that should have been able to be expressed from day dot, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just, it feels like constant growing is, and especially right now, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, the stuff uh, that Akenyo alluded to in regards to her mother is something I can relate to as well because I don't think about it that often, but it is always present in my mind in the way that I would look to my mother for guidance um, on how I should be as a person, you know? Like, she was... My father, too. Like, my parents were... They were pretty much the role models, whether I liked it or not. Like, you know, it may not have been as functional as it should have been all the time, but at the end of the day, like, I was modeling myself after them, whether I knew it or not. And it made me think about this podcast that you had recommended to me quite a long time ago so long ago that I just literally just didn't find the time which is a sin on my part because I finally <laughs> finished it last night um, it's called Moonface and it is truly like no other podcast I've heard before it's a fiction podcast uh, which is at the you know at the start not like many other podcasts I listen to because sometimes they're quite bad but this one is very good um because when I do listen to fiction podcasts, they're done very well. Moonface, it's a completely immersive, well-acted, very emotional story about a young Korean-American uh, guy called Paul living in downtown LA who grapples with coming out to his non-English-speaking single mother. And you're put in the center of his life, uh, hanging out with his friends, living at home with his mother, uh, his sexual experiences with other men. And uh, if you are a child of immigrants and your queerness presents a barrier between uh, the connection between you and your migrant parents, this story is you. Like, this is that story. But it's told with this immense care and um, perfect amount of detail. And I don't want to spoil anything. It is like a movie um, in that, as I said before, it's quite immersive. There's six episodes, 20 minutes each, so pretty much non-committal on your part. Uh, and it builds to this emotional climax that when you get there, it's going to come from not where you expected. Um, and I want to play an excerpt from the podcast of an interaction between Paul and, uh, and his mother having an argument. Paul, what's wrong? Nothing. Mom, stop. I got this. No, I hurt. Nah, stop. You're gonna hurt your back again. What? Nothing. Mom, why, why are we making this food to take to Korea? Because. Why not? It's gonna go bad. No, it tastes good. That's not what I meant. Why? You not excited? Go to Korea? Meet family? Go to wedding? No, I am. Maybe you meet, you know, nice Korean girl. Mom, I'm gay. Nane, Naneng Gaya. I know. What? Then why have you never said anything? 
You never talk to me. I do. I try. No. You, you don't try. You don't care. That's not true. I care. You don't care. You don't care about being Korean. You don't care about trip. You don't care about family. You only care about you. Why do you care about going on this trip? That side of the family doesn't even talk to us. They don't even try to help us out. I've been working overtime just so that we can afford this trip. I care, mom. No, you don't learn Korean. You don't care. Fine. I don't care. Maybe I shouldn't even be going on this trip. Your choice, your life. Yeah, that's an excerpt from a podcast called Moonface uh, and an interaction between Paul and uh, his mother. And uh, honestly, I was tearing up just listening to that moment again. I am not exaggerating when I say that. That's not even like, okay, I don't want to, that's not a spoiler. Okay, like you kind of get a sense that this is happening, but there's so much more to the podcast. And I am not exaggerating when I say this is like, hug your pillow sobbing kind of listening. Oh, I definitely did that. I listened to this podcast kind of at the start of isolation, which was, you oh. know, a very reflective period for everybody. But it was it's the first fiction podcast I've ever listened to mm. and it is done impeccably. And, yeah, as a, a queer Asian, you know, young person – it just hits so hard. It hits so hard. And that moment is one of the examples in which, you know, there are two lives at play here which are bound by relation but absolutely separated by a generation, by cultural difference, by the language barrier, which is so clear in that excerpt. But for one moment, they are clashing in a way that, that it's almost as if it's been meant to clash that way from the start, like from, since his birth. And it's such a powerful moment because if you, like I said before, if you are a child of migrants and you are dealing with coming out or you've dealt with coming out to your parents, you have felt that moment. Like you have felt that emotion and you have felt those walls coming down between you and your parents in a way that has never done before. And you're completely vulnerable. You're completely raw. And um, you may find that, opening your life up to the people who are closest to you is the only thing you need. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an incredible listen. We'll pop a link up uh, to the podcast and where you can get it, or you, though you can get it kind of wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, highly, highly recommend from us here at Race Matters. Yeah, that is all for us uh, here at Race Matters this week. A big thank you to our guest, Zinzia Kenyo, your co-host Sada Khan, for joining us at the start of today's show. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali, and you can find us at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcast race matters 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 race matters